0: And the rest of us, I invite you to take your Bibles, the gospel for today. We're going to find the gospel of Matthew. We are going to read Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Again, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. This is the word of God. As Jesus went on... From there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thanks be to God. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father God, all glory unto you. For your word, we are thankful, for in it is truth, in it is life, in it is the opportunity for us to meet with you and know you all the more. So I ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see, our ears, that we would hear. Open our minds, we come to know and understand your word, our hearts, that we would feel its power. Then in response, we ask, oh God, that you would open our hands, that we would offer grace to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I got back from from a trip to Kenya and Tanzania just about a week and a half ago. I shared a, a little bit about that last week, but I was struck by where we were, particularly in Tanzania. We were in a city named Kigoma, which is on the shores of Lake Tanganyika. And I am saying all of these names with great boldness as though I really know. Uh, we were on the coast of Lake Tanganyika. This is uh, the second deepest lake in the world. And and it's no wonder then that it is surrounded by four different nations. Uh, across on the western shores, there is the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, to the south is Zambia. To the north is Burundi. And to the east, on the eastern shore, is the country of Tanzania. And while we were in Kigoma, it was on the northern edge of Tanzania towards Burundi. Now, now, in this lake, this is known as a prehistoric lake. Some talk about this lake as though it, 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 it is a home for dinosaurs, okay? This is a beautiful, uh, pristine lake. And you could see across the lake into the Democratic Republic of Congo in the mornings. Uh, while we were there, I was uh, told that there are, there are 1,500 different species in Lake Tanganyika, and 40% of those are only found in Lake Tanganyika in the entire world. They're not in any other lake. They're not even in in Lake Victoria, which is also a tremendous lake on the north end of Tanzania. No no other lake in the world, 40% of the 1,500 species in Lake Tanganyika live only in Lake Tanganyika. And so this is, this is uh, it, it's, it's something of a natural phenomenon, and there's a guy that, that decided he was going to capitalize on the fame of Lake Tanganyika. He decided that he was going to, to produce bottled water uh, and publicize it as dinosaur water. I mean, this seems reasonable. I mean, it is a prehistoric lake. It, it, it has this kind of uh, cultural nomenclature. And so uh, he, he started bottling water, and he would send it to Europe, and he would publicize it as prehistoric water, untainted in this way, and he would sell bottled water for like $75 a bottle. And people bought it, which is absurd that people would pay 75 dollars for a bottle of water that 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 fishermen in lake Tanganyika would just be able to row their boat out to and take a drink of water but what's even crazier than that is while we were there we were uh at joy of the harvest which is a mission center in Kigoma, and we ran into a, a missionary couple from texas I mean, seriously, from Texas, as it were. Like, we're, we're, we're halfway across the world. We'll just randomly run into some Texans. They're from Bay City, Texas. Uh, it's uh, Don and Sarah Reed. I mean, Bay City is like down the road, right? And, and we just bump into them. And Don is telling us the story of this dinosaur water and these massive proceeds this guy is making. And then he says, you want to know a secret that water's not even from Lake Tanganyika. I drilled the well on his property that he is pouring it out from. It's not even water from Lake Tanganyika. It's from an aquifer that's not connected to the lake, but he's advertising as that because he's there in Kigoma. And it makes me wonder and ask, how many times do we miss critical components because we don't know where Uh, we're not familiar with what is going on the where of the situation and we miss out on deeper wisdom i think that that is a huge factor for us in matthew chapter 9 Uh, we could first know the cultural context of matthew chapter 9 Uh, we wonder we could ask where is jesus in matthew chapter 9 That's a good question. It doesn't tell us when we get to verse nine, where we opened, which which just says, as Jesus went on from there, from where? From there, from where? So we need to back up a little bit and understand where is Jesus. Jesus in in chapter seven, just a couple verses before, he's just healed the paralytic man. We'll get uh, to that more in a second. And it says that then the man got up And went home. The man got up and went home. So the paralytic man stands and goes to his house, but where is Jesus whenever he heals this paralytic man? Well, in chapter 9, verse 1, we hear that Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Jesus came to his own town. Now, where would we think is Jesus's town if we were just to put a guess out there? We would be wise if we would say, Nazareth, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph from Nazareth. I mean, you know, that would make a lot of sense. And Nazareth is in the region of the Galilee, but it is not on the coast of the Galilee. And it's not where Jesus chose to set his Hometown for his ministry. Nazareth was a small town, a small community of Jews that were deeply devoted Orthodox Jews, uh, trying to pursue faithfulness to the Jewish law while the Roman government had authority over Israel. So that's where Jesus grew up. But you remember Jesus went back only to Nazareth once, and he testified and taught. Do you remember this? And then we have the passage that says a prophet is not welcome in. His hometown. Well, that was his hometown, but Jesus chooses another hometown. So if we were to say in in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, that it says he went back to his hometown, where would he have gone? The answer is Capernaum. Jesus relocated his ministry, his hometown from Nazareth to Capernaum and settled there. Why Capernaum? Well, first of all, we know that, that Peter was from Capernaum, and Peter's uh, mother uh, had a home there. You could actually still visit Peter's mother's home in Capernaum. Uh, the archaeological dig site has an elevated building upon it, and you could look down through the glass upon that archaeological dig, Peter's home. But is, is it just out of convenience, You know, he had a friend who was a disciple, who had a home that he could stay in. There has to be something more. Why would he move his hometown from Nazareth to Capernaum? Have any of you ever moved before in your lives? Raise your hand. Okay. Perfect. Good. We we have built some 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 collective energy in the room. Uh, Have any of you ever moved and you've lived somewhere now long enough where you would call the new place your hometown? That would be the the Craig Biggio syndrome. Okay. Right. Uh, Yeah. So so why did you move? Most often, I would guess you moved for work. You moved for work. You got a job somewhere or, you, or your job transferred you somewhere. Can I get a witness if you're one of those Virginians who now came from Exxon, okay? Testify. I know how this worked. In this community, we got plenty of those. And, and, and so you moved for work. And you would say, well, why, someone might say to you, why didn't you just stay there for work? Well, there was critical business in the location that you moved to for work. Maybe that was the central headquarters. Maybe it it brought you closer to uh, another business that you needed to integrate your business with. There are reasons for business for work to move from one location to another. Might there have been business that Jesus needed to attend to? that would have been critical to his task, for which he would have moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. So Capernaum sits on uh, the, the, the western shore, kind of towards the north, the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, we're going to put another map up. It's not Lake Tanganyika now. It's uh, it's a bigger map of Israel, uh, and you could see the Galilee. But I want you to see up at the top, it says in yellow, Capernaum. And while there's a big dead sea there, and there's the Mediterranean Sea off to your left, further up north is the Sea of Galilee. Uh, The reason why I brought this map into play is because of that blue road. That blue is known as the Via Maris. The Via Maris. This is the international highway that connected Asia, Europe, and Africa through Israel. Did the Via Maris go through Nazareth? No. Did the Via Maris go through Israel more broadly? Yes, Did the Via Maris go through the city of Capernaum on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee? Yes. The Via Maris, the international highway of commerce, bringing the world together in one location through Capernaum. More than that, why Capernaum? Why would the International Highway go through Capernaum? Well, first of all, it sits on the Sea of Galilee. So it sits on a natural food source. I mean, why are the disciples known as fishermen? And why is there so much fishing business on the Sea of Galilee? Because they're not just feeding the people that live on the Sea of Galilee. They're also feeding all of the travelers that are going all over the world selling their merchandise, their wares. And more than that, Capernaum is unique amongst all the cities on the Sea of Galilee because there, are, there is one particular mineral that is mined naturally in the region of Capernaum that makes feeding the masses even more palatable. What might that be? Salt. I got some smart people at Covenant. Oh Lord, thank you Jesus. Salt. Salt mines near Capernaum An international highway, a food source from the fish. And so Jesus relocates his ministry for business matters. His purpose, his purpose is to centralize his ministry so that he can minister to all the world. And from Capernaum, he can minister to all the world from one location. How magnificent is this? So now we know a little bit about where we are, but, but, but we need to know why we're there. Uh, in this particular moment, we see, we see Matthew. Jesus approaches Matthew. He's, uh, Matthew is now at a tax booth. And, uh, and at this tax booth, we might be confronted with the question, uh, well, well, what does this mean about Matthew? Matthew. What can we know about him? We can know that he's not just taxing the people of Capernaum. More than likely, Matthew is situated at a tax booth at the intersection of the international highway. And and he is taxing the world. Can you imagine if the IRS had the authority to tax the whole world? Well, Matthew, because he was a tax agent for the whole world, was kind of rich. I mean, he would have had incredible clout, incredible clout over and above the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. He would have had incredible clout over and above the Roman authorities. In fact, he would have been a protected man by the Roman authorities because that tax was going to Caesar. And so Jesus approaches this wealthy, influential, protected man who I'm certain was skimming off the top, but it was allowable in that day as long as he collected enough. And Jesus says to him, follow me. That's absurd. Matthew is used to telling people, to do what he says, to follow his orders, to be obedient to his commands. And that's not how Jesus approaches him. Jesus comes and says, follow me. And Matthew follows him right back to his house. Jesus goes to Matthew's house with Matthew following him and Matthew calls a party together and they're at that party Here's what we know. Here's what we know about the attendance of uh, uh, of the crowd. It says they're tax collectors, plural, and sinners. That's all we got. I wish we knew a little bit more about the uh, about the demographics, the, the the personal heritage stories of each of these people that were attending that banquet. But we'd know nothing other than there were tax collectors. How is that the case? Tax collectors, plural. Well, it wouldn't have just been Matthew there, but it would have been others that have governance over that particular booth. They would have rotated that responsibility, and so he called the other tax collectors in as well. And sinners, what could it mean here by sinners? Well, sure, it could mean uh, many known public cultural sins. There could have been uh, cheaters. There could have been publicans. There could have been uh, adulterers. There could have been prostitutes. We don't know. We don't know what sinners were there at the table. But there could have also been international traders who could have traded in very inappropriate things. There could have been uh, uh, Romans who would have been on Matthew's protection detail. There could have been Gentiles, foreigners that had been coming in to trade and that were familiar with Matthew and he had a relationship with. There could have been all sorts of deplorable people. But one thing we know for sure. Whoever was at that table was offensive to the Pharisees. The religious leaders of the Jewish people found those gathered at that table unworthy to be with, it was inappropriate and offensive. We'll come back to that point in the story in a second, but I want to dig into another element of the from. Now, we, we set ourselves in the geographical context of where, uh, where Matthew was, where Jesus was, where this story is situated. But I also want to be sure we're clearly fixed in the ministry context with Jesus. Where is Jesus in his ministry? Well, we looked at uh, Matthew 9, 7 and Matthew 9, 1. Matthew 9, 1, that Jesus went to Capernaum. Matthew 9, 7, that the the paralytic was healed and then went to his home. But what happened in these verses? It's a beautiful story, and you probably know more well the, the versions in other gospel accounts. But in Matthew, it's much more simple and narrowly focused. This is the healing of the paralytic man. It's it's known in this way more broadly, there's a crowd of people pressing in upon a home where Jesus is ministering, teaching, and healing, and people are bringing the sick, the lame, those in need to Jesus so that he might heal them. And there are four, uh, four friends that go and find their paralytic uh, compadre, and they bring him to Jesus, and then they arrive at the house, and they can't find their way into the home because there's so many in the crowds pressing in upon Jesus. So they climb climb the stairs onto the roof and there they dig a hole in the roof now are you familiar with the story we're talking about they dig a hole in the roof and they lower this paralyzed man down in front of Jesus and Jesus looks upon their faith and he says your sins are forgiven and people question because they wonder, how is Jesus able to forgive sins? How is this possible that this, that this man, we know where he's from, we know his parents, uh, we, we've seen him operate. How is he able to forgive sins? Some, me, some even think it's blasphemy. And so in order to prove that he has the power to forgive sins, he tells the paralyzed man to get up and to walk. Now that's the fullness of the story as we know it, but but, but here's the, the, the unique aspect from Matthew. Matthew doesn't talk about the crowds pressed in upon the home. Matthew doesn't talk about the hole being dug into the roof. Matthew doesn't talk about the man being lowered down into Jesus' feet. Here's what Matthew talks about. Your sins are forgiven. And so you know I have the power to forgive sins. Get up and walk. Matthew wants to narrow the focus for us. To help us grasp something potent about Jesus' ministry, about his purpose, about the the very reason why he is here in this space, in this time, why he's in Capernaum, why he's with Matthew, why he's with the paralyzed man. Matthew, Matthew wants us to hear what happened to him, what Jesus meant to him, and how that is his witness for the world. You see, when we arrive here at the calling of Matthew, this is a personal moment of testimony. And it's an invitation to go deeper and to understand how potent and wonderful this is. You see, Jesus, Jesus uh, is gathered there in that space, and the Pharisees look upon the gathering with great offense, and they start to question Jesus' disciples. They, they aren't questioning Jesus. They aren't questioning Matthew. They're questioning Jesus' disciples. And, he, and, and Matthew is, is accounting for what takes place here. The Pharisees say, Why would your master, why would Jesus... Eat with tax collectors and sinners. And before the disciples have even a moment to offer a protective witness about this circumstance, Jesus chimes in. And Jesus says, Oh, so clearly, I've come not for the righteous but I've come for sinners. I've come not for the righteous, but for sinners. And, and, and I find that uh, confrontation so baffling because I know in my heart, in my God, in my, in my relationship with Jesus, that, that Jesus hasn't excluded anyone from his table. Uh, but, but what we find here is that Jesus uh, is inviting us to consider why we belong at his table. Why each and every one of us belong at his table. You see, the Pharisees thought that they could achieve righteousness by their own strength, by their own will, by their own capacity. And Jesus is here squashing that and saying, no more. I didn't come for those that think they have it all together on their own. I came for those that are confronted with the reality that they are not Able to be righteous on their own. You see, Romans. Uh 3.23 articulates it so potently for us and, and, and Paul in writing Romans has a grand arc, a, a beautiful trajectory of, of philosophical and theological teaching that sets up the framework and says that the law in and of itself always leads to death because each and every one of us are by our very nature incapable of being obedient to the letter of the law in its entirety. We all, in Romans 3.23, we all have sinned. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. Not one are found righteous on their own. Not one. So when Jesus says, I haven't come to save the righteous, I find it funny, laughable, in fact, because he knows something the Pharisees have not been confronted with yet. Jesus is saying, I came for you, but you need to humble yourself and acknowledge where you are in relationship To the law. All have sinned. Every single one have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person at this table, tax collector and sinner alike, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we come to a a, a communion Sunday at the beginning of the liturgy, uh, we say uh, that, that, that Jesus invites all to His table who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with God and one another. We say that Jesus is inviting everyone who's been confronted with their own need, their own sin, and is ready To pursue God more fully. Matthew 7, uh, another part of the context of where we are, especially uh, but in Jesus' ministry context, as we lead up to Matthew chapter 9, where we are. uh, Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus is again uh, in a conversation with the Pharisees uh, and wants and wants the religious leaders to hear this clearly. In verse 3 through verse 5, it's a broader context, but here's the gist of it in verse 4 as a summary statement. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye while all the time there is a plank, or other versions would say a log, in your own eye? He's saying that all too often we could fixate on what is wrong with other people and not spend enough time focusing on what our own sin, brokenness, and need is. And so we first must come humbly uh, in, in understanding of who we are, and then we could pursue righteous relationships that could encourage others into holiness of heart, and life. So if we, the people of covenant, if we, the people of Christ, were to be pursuing discipleship, Christian discipleship, as Jesus did, then the very first thing we would do and say is, I am aware of my own sin. I am aware that I am a sinner. And so when Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous, but I came for a sinner, you then are saying, I understand Jesus came for me. And then if we, were, if we were doing discipleship as Jesus did it, the second thing we would do is we would then be keenly aware of the needs of others. We would first address the plank in our eye and then we would see the speck in others and we would want to encourage them in the faith and we would want to understand that my sin and, and, and their sin, we are one in that need and I need to be encouraged and I need to encourage others as well. And when we dive deeply into an awareness of our own sin and the common need we have as human, as humanity, we then understand that in Jesus' disciple making ministry, all are welcome. Every single one. And sometimes we could get wrapped up in our own judgmental nature and we could think about who should be in and who should be out and that is when we are bending towards Pharisaic ministry. We can't do that. That cannot be us. And sometimes we, we fail to understand that God is seeking transformation through the saving grace we have in Jesus Christ. And it is that connection and relationship and encouragement that will press us forward together. You might be thinking, I'm not worthy. I don't belong here. I don't belong at this table with Jesus in this fellowship of Christian believers. But Matthew wanted you to know in the context of Jesus' geographical location and in the context of his ministry that Jesus came for you. Jesus came for you just as he came for me. And you and I alike as sinners in need of salvation come to Jesus' table and he says, you are why I'm here. Let's pray. Father, gracious and loving God, the beauty of of the tapestry of salvation that is witnessed to us in Scripture, uh, that that, re- that in, in which you reveal yourself to us, Lord, you are holy, you are mighty, you are majestic, and we praise you, O oh God, that you would welcome us to your table. We come acknowledging our need. We come acknowledging uh, the needs of the world and saying, Lord, we're yours. We surrender to you. We offer ourselves to you. Save us, Lord. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving us. And thank you for a table of discipleship that is big enough for me and for you. Lord, as we, we hear of the witness of Matthew, may it be our witness as well, and may we be so bold that we would proclaim that into the world and, and offer that testimony, that witness of your power and your might to all that would hear. As we continue in worship in this space, in this time, uh, we come into this time of offering acknowledging that you are the giver of every good gift Lord that you have supplied for our every need and so now we in this space and time offer a portion of what you have given to us back to the kingdom building work of your church and we ask that you would bless these gifts that all that is given would be for your glory that more would know your son through the work of these gifts and the ministry of covenant we thank you oh God for these offerings and for each and every one that offers a piece of themselves to you this day. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious
0: name, amen.